Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. I shared earlier in worship that everything is worship. So our marriages are a form of worship. How we interact with our spouse is a form of worship. And how we interact with the people that we're dating or even just in friendships with is a form of worship as well. And so as we're going through this series, that's exactly what we're doing, is we're wanting to look at what the Bible has to say about it. And we're wanting to look at what God has to say about it in order that our relationships may worship God. Does that sound good? Yes. Amen. So how about we stand up quickly? I know. I haven't done it for a while. And you can stay sitting. You've got crutches. You're fine. And let's pray. Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you are love. I thank you that you love us, Father. And I thank you, God, that you love marriage. I thank you that you love relationships, Jesus. And I thank you that these are gifts that you have, you have given us, God. And I pray that what we get to do as we go through this series, Jesus, is discover what you have to say on the subject of relationships, Father, specifically marriage, specifically dating, God. What you have to say on the subjects of sex and intimacy, Jesus, that we might ultimately be able to develop relationships that reflect a godly lifestyle and a worship of you. pray that as we go through this message tonight, that God, again, that we're challenged, Father, to to want to love our wives better as husbands, to want to love our husbands better as wives, and to want to love each other in a fashion that you set out. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You can be seated. How many people like Christmas? Well, okay, there's a couple of people that like Christmas. I know it's a long way away, but how many people actually like Christmas? Yes, that's a little bit better. Who likes presents? Who likes Christmas trees? Who likes decorating the Christmas trees? Who thinks this is a stupid thing to start a marriage talk about? No, Christmas. I'm not giving you presents and we're not putting up a Christmas tree. But every year, and I think a lot of people have the same sort of routine is that every year, for us, it is December 1. That the Christmas tree comes out and it's a fake Christmas tree. Took Sage a little while to convince me to have a fake Christmas tree because I thought the only heretics did that. But we have joined the heretics. You can pray for me afterwards if you're all for the real Christmas tree. But we've got a fake Christmas tree that we put up. You know, you click the branches together and all that. And you've got a box of decorations. You get the decorations out. And then kids turn up. And kids love to decorate Christmas trees. I can tell you now, kids aren't necessarily great at decorating Christmas trees without a little bit of guidance. But they do get better as the years go on. So what Sage does, and it normally seems to happen while I'm at work or something, but she gets the Christmas tree out, sets it up, and then the little goons, like, yeah, I call my kids goons, but they, when they come home from school, they go to work setting up the Christmas tree. And so the decorations are out, and they pick up everything, and they place this on the tree, and they place that on the tree, and they go through in order to put stuff on the tree to make it look good. The decorations on the tree. And then what Sage normally does at some point through the festive season is that she takes the girls shopping. Not for presents, for Christmas decorations. In order to find something that they can put on the tree. 
And so they, they go through and they pick out, oh, this look, this look great on the tree. And so every year there's something new that gets placed on our Christmas tree. And the kids grab it and they put it on, a bit of ownership. And what Sage has done is she's kind of schooled them and taught them and trained them that you put this here and you don't put like a hundred things right there of all the same things. It won't look good, but you've got to stagger it and spread it out and all of that with the idea of making the Christmas tree look good. Because how many of us know that you can have two types of Christmas trees? You can have a Christmas tree that looks like a good Christmas tree with great decorations, or you can have a Christmas tree that looks like you've got the box of decorations and just dumped it on the top. I used to have the Christmas trees that were dumped on top, so I wasn't creative. And then I married Sage. I thought my Christmas trees looked good, and then I married Sage, and I realized mine didn't look so good. But it hasn't got much to do with marriage, but if you think of marriage like a Christmas tree, it does, which still might sound like a weird description but our marriages aren't much indifferent like a Christmas tree we get decorations that we can place on our Christmas trees marriage isn't much indifferent we'll pick up things along the way in life that will decorate on our marriage tree have you and some of this could be marriage could have decorations of love on it who thinks that sounds good for a marriage of love who thinks it would look good if a marriage had decorations of forgiveness on it I think it would look great of hope, of reconciliation. These things are good decorations. But then sometimes our marriage trees, to keep with the example, don't have any of that on it. Sometimes they've got the opposite. Sometimes they might have resentment on it. Sometimes there might be hopelessness. Sometimes there might be selfishness that we place on it. And the reality is this. We will decorate our marriages with something and it'll be some things will be visible for the world to see and then other things are like the decorations that you put behind the tree that only you get to see. But there's certain things that everyone gets to see. So we could decorate our marriage with laziness. But we, we won't do anything for our spouse. It's just lazy. That's a decoration that you put on your marriage. You could decorate your marriage with selfishness. You could decorate it with being a workaholic. That is something that everyone will see. And that might cross multiple facets of your life, but the reality is it's a decoration that is definitely on your marriage because it affects your marriage. Anything we put on our tree, on our Christmas tree, will affect our Christmas tree and will affect how it looks. Same thing with our marriages. We get to decorate our marriages however we want, but the reality is the decorations will affect it. Some will make it look good, some not so good. You with me? Thus far? Fantastic. So in marriage, there are not... Hundreds of choices, but there are two choices. You choose to love your spouse or make things work, or you don't. You choose to not love your spouse and not make things work. What I've discovered is there's only two choices in my marriage. When conflict arises, there's only two choices. I either choose to love her, choose to make it work, or choose to do nothing. And what generally happens is if I choose to do nothing... I still make a choice even though I've done nothing, but now there'll be a default consequence that I've got no control of. I've chosen to do nothing, so then the result will be something else. And so some choices are this, and choices are decorations. So what we're wanting to talk about tonight is this, decorating our marriages, decorating with love. The choices are this, we get to choose to forgive. We get to choose to instills security, stability. We get to choose to be romantic, husbands. We get to choose to be spontaneous, to be passionate. We get to choose to love. We get to choose to be hopeful. We get to choose to give our spouses words of affirmation. These are choices. 
And these are choices that we decorate our marriages with. But like with everything, there's some things that we need to put on our marriages. There's some things that we need to take off. And I think if we're all honest, we'll find things in our marriages that we need to take off and we'll find some things that we need to put on. So the opposite of some of them is this, is resentment. You refuse to forgive. That's well, a decoration that, especially if you're refusing to forgive, that's a decoration that's now on your marriage that is painting the picture of your marriage. There's insecurity. There's instability. There's no romance. There's restraint in that you won't be passionate. You're, I mean, not, not, you won't be spontaneous. You're unpassionate. You don't act with love, but rather you operate out of a cold shoulder. Sometimes there's only one partner that does that. Sometimes there's both partners that do that. No one likes a cold shoulder. Some marriages are hopelessness and some marriages are filled with empty words. These are decorations. Some things we need to be active with taking off. Some things we need to be active with putting on. But just like our Christmas tree goes, goes away after a period of time, once Christmas is finished, it's surprising how long it's up and then Christmas is finished and it's gone the next day. Our marriages sometimes become like that. We put our decorations on, but after time they fall off and fall in the box. And it's a deliberate effort that we need to pick it up and choose to put it back on the Christmas tree. We want marriages that are decorated in a way that demonstrates God. We want marriages that are demonstrated in a way that demonstrates reconciliation, that demonstrates forgiveness. We want marriages that demonstrate a lifestyle of loving our spouse that our kids will see. Real love is this. It is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. How many of the married people here, when you first got married, thought your spouse was perfect? Yeah. I did. Sage did. She's only just worked out I'm not. (laughs) Because someone told her. Here's the reality. We think we married a perfect person and so we've got all these decorations on the tree. But at some point they start falling off the tree because we realize that they're not a perfect person. They're imperfect. And so we stop putting decorations on our tree and say, for instance, they're just, they're annoying. Won't cook your breakfast. I won't cook her breakfast. It's not meant to be sexist, any of this. But like, there's stuff that they're, they're just annoying with or, or they upset you with and there's forgiveness that you need to do, but you choose not to do that now. And so you start up operating out of resentment because you're an annoying person. Well, now that's something that we start taking off our tree and maybe putting something else on. And generally it happens because we've crossed this bridge from thinking that they're a perfect person to now having the realisation that they're an imperfect person, but we forget to stop and look at ourselves and realise that I am not perfect either. My spouse mightn't be perfect, but I'm definitely not perfect. So for all the issues that I see in her life, she sees just as many, if not more, that is wrong with my life. So the idea is what we're wanting to do as married couples is come together, realizing that neither one of us are perfect, but what we get to do is be deliberate about what we decorate our marriages with in order to move forward together. You with me? So who's ready to get into it? Song of Solomon from chapters 3. We've got a bit to cover this week. We're going from chapters 3, 1 through to uh, chapter 4, verse 7. The background of it is this. At the start, Solomon's bride is having a dream. And she's having a dream that where she's going to be abandoned by her husband. Then it's going to move from Solomon's bride to talking to it's going to be the young women of Jerusalem talking. And now this is where they're talking about the wedding procession that they experienced or that they watched. 
We all love going to weddings. Well, I hope you do anyways. But they're going to be talking about the wedding possession that they, they watched and they witnessed and they're a part of that. And then it's going to move from there to Solomon's talking and he's going to be talking about the wedding night. One thing that you are going to notice as we go through this is this is where it starts heating up a little bit. I'll keep it very PG tonight. We've got Lucas coming next week. I can't guarantee what he's going to do. So he will be sending me some notes, I think, so we can do up some worksheets. I'll have an idea of what he's going to be doing. But it's going to be great either way. The week after that, the week after Lucas, my suggestion will be this. Don't have your kids in here. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be all sorts of things. But potentially, maybe don't have the kids in. It'd be a great time to not have the kids in. But if you're all for that, you're all for that. That's your call. So are we ready to get into it? Yes, fantastic. First slide, please, guys. It says this, Solomon, Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. It says, One night, this is a young woman speaking, Solomon's bride. One night, as I lay in bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, I will get up and roam the city, searching in all its streets and squares. I will search for the one I love. Next slide. So I searched everywhere, but did not find him. The watchmen stopped me as they made their rounds. And I asked, have you seen the one I love? Then scarcely had I left him when I found my love. I caught him and held him tightly. Then I brought him to my mother's house, into my mother's bed, where I had been conceived. That's weird, just so you know. (laughs) No one does that. For those of you that are yet to be married, it's not normal. Don't do it. For those of you that are married... If that's what you're doing, let's come up and we'll talk about this afterwards. But no one takes their partner into their mother's bed, into their where they were conceived, with the idea that he's taking, she's taking him into her mother's room, into her mother's bed to make love with him, where she was conceived. But this is the truth. It's weird for us, but in Solomon's day, it meant this: the mother's bedroom meant intimacy. The mother's bedroom um, was a place where there was feelings of security and safety. So what she's saying to him is this. She's saying, I want to be intimate with you. And I want to be intimate with you in a place where I can feel intimate, where a place that I feel secured, where a place that I feel safe with you. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about all sorts of things. But one of the things that we have been talking about is insecurities. Insecurities and generally in regards to self-appearance, how we look, insecurities of emotions, that sort of thing. But there's also insecurities of something else, and it's called abandonment. And in the dream, this is what's happening. She's revealing her insecurities about being abandoned. That's why she says at the start, she she says this, One night as I lay on my bed, I yearned for my lover. I yearned for him, but he did not come. So I said to myself, in the dream, I said to myself, I will get up and I'll search for him and I'll look for him and I'll find him. When you get to that to the point where she says, when I found my love, she says, I caught him and held him tightly. That word held in the Hebrew, it means this, that she clutched him in such a way that she would not let him go. She, when she found him, she grabbed hold of him in such a way that she was not letting him go, that she was not going to let him get away from again. And he, she dragged him into a place where she could feel safe and secure and intimate with him. For some of us here, this is going to be real. Some of us might have been in a previous relationship before where that person's abandoned us. Some of us might be in a marriage even where we've been in previous relationships that we've been abandoned. 
And for some of us, we maybe haven't dealt with that. And that's baggage that we bring into our current marriage or current relationship. Not to say that you stay there, not to say that you're bad, not to say that you're dirty, if that's the case, but rather there's something that we need to work on to move through. Because abandonment is a real thing. A lot of the time we think of abandonment as only being something physical, like they physically leave us. Abandonment is so much broader than physically being left, but abandonment is emotional. Abandonment is sexual as well as physical. The reality is this, no one wants to be left alone. No one wants to be abandoned by their partner. Full stop. And that's what she's saying to him. Well, that's what she's saying in the dream. I don't want to be abandoned and I'm terrified of it. That's why she grabs him and drags him in there. Truth is this, we make choices every day in our marriage that will do one or two things. One, it will lead to isolation. Or the other choice is this, that it will lead to oneness. Choices that lead to isolation will generally lead themselves to a place where someone feels like they are being abandoned, that they are being torn away or, or their spouse isn't there for them. Choices of oneness will always lead to feeling safe and secure. What we want in our marriages is marriages that we feel safe and secure. So the first point is this. We decorate our marriages with security. Signs of isolation, once they start coming, there's potentially a whole host or list of things that start flagging isolation, but some of them are this. Feeling that your spouse isn't hearing you and doesn't want to understand what you are trying to communicate. This is generally a telltale sign that someone's feeling abandoned. If you're sitting in your marriage and one person is saying, I don't feel like you listen to me, that's generally a sign that there is an emotional abandonment going on. Doesn't mean that your marriage is falling apart. Doesn't mean that you're hitting rock bottom. But what it does mean is that someone's not being heard. And if that keeps going on and on and on, what we do is we end up finding ourselves in a place of feeling abandoned or someone finds themselves in a place of being abandoned. One or both of you have an attitude that says, why try? I don't want to work on this. We're in that place. We're in a scary place. You seem unable to please your spouse or meet meet their expectations. This is another sign of there's potential abandonment taking place. Again, all of these things are just signs and not facts that your marriage is falling apart nor it's going to implode or anything of the sort, but rather that there's signs that we need to communicate. The best thing that we can do in our marriages and in our relationships is be proactive about communicating with our spouse. You are leading separate lives. Your spouse is withdrawing from you. Your spouse refuses to accept responsibility for the marriage. Their comment here will be, it's your problem, it's not mine. How many of us know that if it's a problem it's in a marriage, it's both people's problems? It's not just one person's problem. If one person has a problem, It's still the other person's problem. If Sage has a problem in our marriage, it's my problem as much as it's hers, even if I might think it's hers. And we need to be proactive as husbands and wives. When there's problems, it's both of our problems. It doesn't fall on one person's shoulder. It comes down to both of them. One or you believe that avoiding conflict is better than dealing with the pain of reality. This one's a big one. Because ultimately, if we don't deal what is dividing us or what is hurting us or the conflict or what is frustrating us about that person, what it will do, if let undealt with, it will completely separate you from that person because you're not communicating. How many of us know that good friendships, good marriages, good relationships are built around conflict? Not that you're looking for conflict, but when it comes, you don't run away from it. You deal with it. 
You don't fight each other nor bash one another nor get weapons or anything of the sort, but you deal with it. It's a, communi- it's a conversation that you have when it comes up. It creates oneness. Abandonment comes in ultimately three forms, physical, sexual, and emotional. We can be emo- feel emotionally abandoned, especially if we're not feeling communicated with. It's an emotional abandonment. And it feels just as painful as it does when someone physically leaves, when someone physically abandons us. We talked a couple of weeks ago about sexless marriages. That is sexual abandonment, which is just as painful as the other two. What we don't want in marriages is we don't want any form of abandonment. Rather, we want to see marriages that pursue oneness together. And I think ultimately how we pursue oneness together is for one, communicating with one another and putting Christ at the centre. The more that I pursue the Father and the more that I pursue Him and allow Him to do something in my heart, He challenges me about what's going on in my marriage. And when Sage does the same thing, we get to come together and work in reconciliation in order to build a stronger, healthier marriage. The reality is this, that I think we begin to feel abandoned when our deepest needs aren't being met. Ephesians 5.33, if you can put that up on the screen, it says this, However, each man among you, without exception, is to love his wife as his very own self, with behaviour worthy of respect and esteem, always seeking the best for her with an attitude of loving kindness. And the wife must see it to it that she respects and delights in her husband and that she notices him and prefers him and treats him with loving concern, treasuring him, honouring him and holding him dear." If we were to separate the women over this side and the guys over this side and we did a big poll of like what are your deepest needs, there would be a multitude of things. I don't think you can necessarily get it right. But I think everything will boil down to two things. And this is what the Bible teaches, I believe. Two things. That husband's deepest need is this, to be respected. That a wife's deepest need is this, to be loved. They're very narrow, but at the same time extremely Broad. What does it look like for me to love Sage? Well, it's going to be very different what, how I have to love Sage to how Jeff loves Sue. And how Sage respects me is going to be very different to how Sue respects Jeff. But I think our deepest needs come down to being respected and being loved. Men, this is how we love our wives. And I like it how the Amplified pulls it apart a little bit more, but it says it talks about behavior that is worthy of respect. So behavior that you do behind closed doors should be able to be projected to everyone without feeling ashamed of what you're doing. Always having an attitude that seeks the best for her. Not the best for you, but the best for her. Have an attitude towards her of loving kindness. Guys, this is how you love your spouse as well. It looks like this. If she is selfish, you love her. If she doesn't love you back, you love her. If she doesn't respect you, you love her. It's your responsibility. It is not your responsibility to make your wife respect you. It is your responsibility to love your wife. Girls, this is how we respect our husbands or some ways. Anyways, we notice him. Girls want to be noticed, but so do guys. Guys want their wives to notice them. Guys want to feel like they are strong towards their wife, that they can protect their wives, that they are security for their wives. They want to be noticed. Women... Prefer your husband above your friends, above chocolate. Leash. (laughs) No worries, Rick. (laughs) Treat him with loving concern. Treasure him. Honor him. Hold him dear. Girls, it's not your job to make your husband love you. It's your job to honor him. 
respect him. But I think when we both come to it from that attitude, I'll be respected and she will be loved. And specifically, if both coming from the attitude of I want to serve that person, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything about what you're going to give to them. Meaning our spouse's deepest needs gives them the security that we are with them and we are for them and that we will never abandon them. We'll never leave them. We'll always be there for them. So we never get to that place and never allow them to get to that place where I'm scared that they're going to leave. So here's some questions. There's a handful of questions that are going to be on your, on your sheet if you're husbands and wives, but just two. And I suggest that you ask this as married couples when you go home tonight, sit down, grab a glass of wine, grab some chocolate leash, that'll be fine, and ask these questions. Husbands, ask your wife this. What makes you feel loved by me? Husbands, when you do that, Shut up. Don't talk, don't but, no, no interjections, no nothing. Just wait, stop, listen. What does she have to say? Take it on board. Get a pen and paper out. Write it down. Don't forget it. You'll get creds for that. Wives, you're not the hook. Do the exact same thing. Ask your husband, how can I, what does it look like? How do you re- feel respected by me? Don't talk. Allow him to talk. Get a pen and paper out. Write it down. Put it somewhere, both of you, so that you can go back and reflect on it. So in times of conflict, conflict specifically, that you can know how to love them, that you can know how to respect them. If you think that you're loving your spouse just to find out that you're not, it's not going to work too well, is it? Like Sage loves acts of service. And if all I do is go up and tell her that, oh, gee, you look good. Gee, you do things good. And I just give her words of affirmation doesn't do anything it's like warm fuzzy feelings for her but it's not how she wants to be loved it's not how she needs me to love her what she likes I don't understand it but she likes me to do the dishes (laughs) Scotty where are you (laughs) Sage loves me to do the dishes so if I do the dishes she feels like I am actively loving her so I am deliberate about doing the dishes. A couple of dishes sessions a week, like give me creds for the rest of the month. I can like relax, not do anything for a little bit. <laughs> Let's move on really quickly. <laughs> Song of Solomon from verse five. Next slide, please. It says, and this is a young woman again. She's saying, Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. We talked about this last week as far as what does it look like to awaken love before the time is right. If you haven't listened to it, I'd encourage you to jump on the podcast. What does it look like to date? What does it look like to protect intimacy um, while we're dating and all the above? That's what she's talking about again. Don't awaken love before it's time. Verse 6, this is the young women of Jerusalem. Now, this is them talking about the wedding procession. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it's Solomon's carriage surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They are all skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy is gold, its cushions are purple. It was decorated with love by the women of Jerusalem. This is point two. We decorate our marriages with friends and mentors. Did you pick that up, David? 
Yeah, you did, didn't you? We're designed for community. We talked about this last week with the singles. We're designed for community. So just like singles are designed for community, married people are designed for community. That's why when we get married, how many of you realise when you get married, there's a lot of people there? Like there's, there's a swarm of people coming to celebrate and they're all like, say, let's pretend this auditorium was where the, the marriage happened. And, and so everyone's standing there. The groom's up the front, but no one cares about him because the bride comes in and then she walks up the aisle. She gets to him. They stop. They talk. They do their vows. They do everything. They kiss and it's exciting, just like Alex and Marga kissing before. Everyone loves it. Everyone claps and cheers. You go to the reception and it's so annoying when you're getting married because everyone bangs on the stupid little glasses and makes you kiss and, and all of that. And thank goodness I've already gone through that. I don't have to do that again. But the reality is we've got community around us. When we get married, there's community there. And we've got friends. We've got family. We've got all sorts of people there. But we've also got older friends. We've got people that maybe are friends of our parents or like acquaintances somehow. And in, in the church we have that, we'll have um, older people from the church that we, that we love, that we respect, that we invite them to our wedding because we love them. The reality of it is this, those people are mentors. It says this, in regards to mentors, it says, King, look, in verse 7, look, it's Solomon's carriage surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They were surrounded by people. It says later on that they had swords on their sides, that they had swords on their thighs, ready to defend. They were carrying shields, ready to defend, swords, ready to attack, ready to do something. They were mentors. I love it that it says this. It, says, it talks about experienced warriors. They have this. They have practical as well as theoretical knowledge. And in this, we could look at warfare. They had practical and theoretical knowledge of warfare. That's why they were there. But mentors also are this. They are people that have practical and theoretical understanding of marriage. They've been married. They currently are married. So my thoughts are this, that a mentor, someone that's married, will be some, if mentor in your marriage will be someone that's married. And generally they'll be married. This is no statistics. This is Robert's own brain talking now, okay? So disregard it. Take it as gospel. Do whatever you want with it. I don't care. But a mentor will be anyone from being married from about year seven to year 50. Some marriages maybe could be early, depending on what they've been through. Some marriages could be at year 14. They're still not marriage material. But on average, that's my guesstimate. I could be wrong. Happy to be wrong. Someone wants to talk to me about that afterwards and tell me I'm wrong. Come up. Yep, fantastic. Happy days. But the reality is this. We'll have mentors ready to defend that are skilled. They're skilled in marriage. They have experience. What we often do is this. We surround ourselves with our friends. Friends are great. That's why we have the best man and the groomsman and the, the maid of honours and all that, that they come up the front and they're with us. They're our friends, but they're not our mentors. Friends are this. Friends are like soldiers. They're with us. They're in the trenches. Like if you can picture World War I or something like that, they're in the trenches. The foxholes are dug out. They're in there with you, living with you. But they don't know how to do warfare necessarily. They haven't been there. See, someone in the trenches has got one view of the war, but someone that's a commanding officer generally has a large view of the war. And they're generally a commanding officer because they understand how war works. They've not only practiced and studied it, 
but they've got practical experience about how to do warfare as well as they see the whole battle. And so oftentimes what we do is we think that, for one, maybe we can deal with everything in our marriages. Big mistake. There's some things that you shouldn't deal with in your marriage that you need outside help to come in with. Haven't necessarily got examples, but when you're there, you'll know it. If you just can't get anywhere together, you're always butting heads. It's always erupting in anger. I suggest that's when you bring a mentor in. Mentors are not this. They are never a sibling. They are never a cousin, parent, grandparent. They are not your children. They are not your uncles and they are not your friends. Mentors are this. They are a neutral person or couple that you decide of ahead of time. What we generally do is we'll surround ourselves with our friends or our parents or something like that. Trouble comes up, we'll talk to them about it, sides get taken and it gets messy. The reason we don't use those people as mentors is because they'll take sides. So if I run to my parents, they will side with me, not with Sage. Actually, I think that they would side with Sage and not me. But <laughs> and the importance of it being agreed upon before time is for this reason. Generally, in the midst of conflict, you won't want to decide who's going to be your mentors. It's something that you come together, you talk about. Who do we respect? Who do we value? Who has got a, a marriage that we look up to, that we love, that we think is healthy? Go and have a talk to them about it. Hey, if we have problems, can we go to you, talk to you, have you work through it with us? So that's one of the things that Sage and I did earlier on was this. We sit down. If we have problems in our marriage, where are we going to go? Who are we going to talk to? Who do we both respect? And we come to a mutual decision that these are the people that I value, that we respect, that we admire. And so when there's problems... We've both already committed that we'll go to these person and have them talk to us. If you were to get married here, what we do is this to start off with. You'll go through pre-marriage with either me or one of the elders with the idea that you sit down and we, we go through some things about marriage to get some conversation happening, to get some background. And then after that, what we are trying to do is this, that you are mentored by one of the elders for six months. For the simple reason that Pre-marriage is great, but I think mentorship is more important. Having someone come along and lovingly, lovingly care for you and guide you through some of the struggles that you're going to go through over the first six months. Then after that, the suggestion is this, that you find your own mentors. It could be the same couple that mentored you. That's how we do it here because we value mentorship. But while mentors are great, they're there when you need direction. But they're not always there. You still need good friends. Mentors are fundamental. Mentors are important, but you still need good friends. Otherwise, you become an island. But you'll have one or two groups of friends, generally, friends that are either foundation builders or foundation failures in that they will destroy any foundation that is given or put there. Great friends do this. They encourage a relationship with God in you. They love your spouse. They back up your spouse, meaning this, that she says or for instance, Sage says, I don't like when you do this. And I share that with my friends. They back up what she says because they value her. Now, sometimes maybe it's petty and maybe they explain that it's petty. But more often than not, I think friends should back up what your spouse does because they're all about developing oneness in your relationship. Friends that encourage you to do the opposite of what your spouse is saying, they're creating a divide. They're creating isolation. They're not creating oneness. Good friends also do this. They value what your spouse values because they want 
to see you or they'll encourage you to value what your spouse values because they want to see you develop oneness. They want to see you develop a connection together because they love you both. They'll point out the foxes. For those of you that were here last week, you remember that we talked about foxes. Foxes being problems that arise in our marriages or in our relationships. Sometimes they're small, sometimes they're big, but we'll all have issues that turn up. And what we want to do is this, and we want, what we want friends to do is, this, is point out the foxes so we can deal with them. Bad friends will do this. They'll pull you away from God. They'll tolerate your spouse. They won't support your spouse. They won't back them up. They have no value of what your spouse thinks, and they will feed the foxes. And ultimately, they'll do this. They'll feed isolation, not oneness in a marriage. And so some questions for marrieds and singles. Have you decided who your mentor is going to be? If you're married, have you sat down and had a conversation If we have problems in our marriage, who are we going to go to? Who are we going to talk to about? Have you come to a consensus of that? And the other question is this for everyone. Do your friends build oneness or isolation in your marriage? If you're a single person, do your friends build oneness or isolation with your connection with God? Or do your friends build oneness or isolation in your friendships in general? Friends should always build into oneness. The verse continues on from um, verse 11 with the young woman. She says this. The dream's finished, obviously. Now the wedding possession is coming to a close. And she says, come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. Then now we're into Song of Solomon chapter 4. And this is where the young man picks it up. And he is talking about his wedding night. And he says this, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Galed. Your teeth are as white as sheep recently shorn and freshly washed. She brushes her teeth, obviously. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with his twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting and he wants to kiss her. He loves her. He's excited about her. Your cheeks are like a rosy pomegranate. It's behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as a Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. No commentator says this. No commentary says this. I am going to say this. I think they're jeweled with his hickeys. She just wants to kiss her. His, her mouth is inviting. Her neck's inviting. He just wants to kiss her. He loves her. And then he goes on and says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of... A gazelle grazing amongst the lilies. We'll leave that for a minute. (laughs) And before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful. Well, no flaw in every way. I love this description that he gives. There's nothing that he leaves out nearly. Like he gets to a belly, of course, but he doesn't leave anything out. He describes her. He is generous with his words. He is generous in his description of her. He's generous with how much he wants to describe and that he loves her. And I love it in verse 7, the last one. It says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful, on other translations say this, no flaw in every way. That word beautiful, that second beautiful, it means this, no physical or moral shortcomings. Perfect morals, perfect personality, perfect character, perfect looks, perfect everything. The interesting thing about that word is it's only used 18 times in the Old Testament. And when it's used is this. It's used to describe the perfect sacrificial animal. 
For those of you that have got an idea or an understanding of Scripture, in the Old Testament, the Israelites used to have to sacrifice a perfect animal to God for the forgiveness of their sins. So they'd have to get an animal that was, had no breaks or, or spots or blemishes. There's nothing wrong with them. And they would sacrifice that animal for the forgiveness of sins. It was a perfect animal. This is that same word he's using. He's not talking about he's going to sacrifice or anything of the sort. But rather what he's saying is you are perfect. You are absolutely perfect. There's nothing wrong with you at all. You're pure gold. And I love how vocally generous it is. And he says this, or this is point three, sorry. We decorate our marriages with our words. Solomon describes her beauty. He is generous in her beauty. What we like to do as husbands, maybe just me, but I'm pretty sure this is husbands, is we find one catchphrase that works and we kill it. And we kill it and we keep killing it until it doesn't even work anymore. Like even the simple, I love you, you look good. It doesn't work after a while, gentlemen, FYI. You need to find another way of doing it. And I love it how he describes it. He paints it. He paints his picture. And I love your hair. I love your eyes. I love everything about you. I want to kiss your neck. I want to kiss everything because you're just gorgeous. You're morally perfect. You're physically perfect. And his voice gets a little bit higher like mine does as well because he's so excited. He finds ways to be so vocally generous and tell her that she looks great. And I love this thought as well. This is his wedding night. What do you do after the reception? No one can work it out. You generally go to where you're staying and you consecrate the marriage. It's not meant to be an awkward session, but like that's what happens. But he stops. Like most guys, like they're just like shooting in there. They're excited. He stops. He stops and he takes time and describes her beauty, describes how attractive she is, describes everything about her that he loves. So many of us as men are so quick to just move in and get the job done. And I'm not even necessarily talking about sex. I'm just talking about life. We're moving so quick with life, with how we interact with our spouse, with how we interact with the kids, that we forget to even take the time to love our wife. We forget to even take the time to to compliment her and how good she looks. And all we care about is this. Gee, that dress looks good on you. Well, there's so much more that she's wearing other than a dress. She's got earrings on. She's got makeup. She's got lipstick. She's got shoes. She's got a bra on. You could compliment that if you wanted. Because the reality is this. No one gets tired of being complimented, specifically if it's different, if it's engaging, if it's looking for a creative way of doing it. But I think being vocally generous is also this. It's also being playful. Playfulness creates intimacy. Playfulness creates tension. I want to be playful with Sage. So I'll encourage her and I'll be playful with her. Like I'll tease her with my words. All heard this, sex does not begin in the bedroom, it begins in the kitchen. I don't understand that, but I know Sage is a lot happier about having sex if I do the dishes. So I do a lot of dishes. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like I said, yeah, let's leave that one. (laughs) It'll get really bad. But I'll be playful with Sage. She'll be playful with me. We'll tease each other. We'll stir each other with our words. We'll be generous with our words. We'll be generous with how playful we are. But the other thing is this, and this is important, that we're not just vocally generous about how she looks in the clothes that she's wearing and the makeup she's got on. 
The worst thing sometimes that we do is we only ever describe how good they look in that dress, how good they look in that outfit, how good you look tonight. But we never compliment their body. What happens when we don't compliment someone's body, specifically our wife, is this. It leads to insecurity that I only look good when I'm dressed up, but I don't look good naked. As husbands, we want our wives to be comfortable in front of us naked. We want to be comfortable to stand in front of our wives naked. And I love it how he's very deliberate in encouraging his wife and what he sees in a body that he finds attractive, that he likes and that he values. And I've got some thoughts here on what it could look like to be vocally generous in that it is describing something. It's not just you look beautiful, but it's describing the, what you look beautiful in. I like your earrings. I personally never notice earrings. I don't know why, but I don't. So I try and make a choice of like focusing on the earrings and saying they are good looking earrings. That lipstick, I love it. I love your perfume. I like it how you've done your hair. I like your dress. Instead of just saying, you look great tonight, how does she look great? Yes, I'm talking specifically to the dudes because the girls are generally better at this. But if you're not, then I'm talking to you. But for the most part, just the guys. Do you find creative ways on encouraging your wife with how she looks? Do you find creative ways, husbands, on being playful with your wife? And it could be like this. I love it how he says, your lips are inviting. So you could be saying something along the lines of this. I want to encourage her body. I want to tell her what I like about her body, about her. And you can say, I love what the lipstick has done to your lips. I want to kiss you. I can't help. I love how you've got your hair. You've lifted it up. It's seducing me. I can see your neck. I just want to put hickeys all over it. Or maybe it gets to the dress and it's like, I love that dress. Gosh, I love what's underneath that dress. And you could go further and, and say, I want to play with what's underneath that dress. No, this is a little bit awkward sometimes and, and red face, but the reality is this is real thing in marriage. And if we're not proactive with talking about it nor doing it, no one does it. No one does it. We need to be proactive with loving our spouse, with being generous. So the married people, do you search for ways to tell her how beautiful she is? With clothes, without clothes. And single people, do you dress people's emotions with your words or do your words leave them feeling naked? It's the last point. I want to end with this. We decorate our marriages with romance. And I'm specifically talking to the guys because I think girls are generally better at this and the guys are sucky. How many of us, when we get married, we pursue her. Before we get married, she is our sole focus, our sole energy, our sole thought. But then after a while, generally after the honeymoon, at some point, they're not our sole focus anymore. Something else becomes our sole focus. And we stop wooing them. We stop chasing after them. We stop romancing them. I don't think any relationship was meant to get to that place where the romance stops. I think the romance is meant to go on and on and on and on. And we should be increasing. We should be pursuing it. I think every marriage wants this. Great sex and romance. I think every marriage is happy with great sex and romance. In the book Intimacy Ignited, they put it like this. Sex is not an event. It's an environment. It's not an act, but rather it is an atmosphere. Romance creates the atmosphere for intoxicating sex. And romance creates the atmosphere for passionate marriage. I love the thought that romance creates the atmosphere for passion in my marriage. Romance creates the atmosphere of loving my wife, of loving my husband. Romance is this, or the dictionary definition is, it is the expressive and pleasurable feeling 
from an emotional and sexual attraction towards another person. Romance is expressive. Girls, are you ready for this? You're going to like this. You're going to thank me for this. Deuteronomy 24.5. I'm not sure if anyone's ever noticed this scripture at all, but the girls will from now on. Verse 5 says this, A newly married man must not be drafted into the army or given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife he has married. Who's excited? Girls, who feels ripped? No, don't put your hands up, but who feels ripped off? We meant to spend that first year, I love it how it says that, spend that first year bringing happiness to the wife. That's not sexual, but it is sexual. There's all sorts of ways that we bring happiness to our wife. But I love the thought that we spend 12 months trying to find out what pleases her, trying to find out what makes her happy, trying to find out how we can love her, how we can interact with her in such a way that she feels loved. And so here's some thoughts that maybe we could be spending 12 months discovering. What delights her? Like what things does she like? What jewellery does she like? What smells does she like? What is her love language? If you don't know a love language, it's going to be hard to make her happy to start with. What turns her on? What turns her off? What satisfies her? What pleases her? I think so often, like I said before, we're so quick, specifically as men, to be rushing forward, moving forward, progressing in marriage, progressing in life, progressing in everything, that we stop loving our family, that we stop loving our wives. We stop decorating our marriage with intimacy and we start decorating it with busyness. So guys, girls, listen to this. Remind your husband when you get home. Nine ways, my suggestion to romance your, way, your wife over the next 30 days. Here's a 30-day challenge. Nine ways to be deliberate in romancing your wife. You don't have to do this. You can do this. You can choose your own way, but do something. While your wife is taking a shower or a bath, heat up the towel in a dryer and give it to him. You can put it in the oven. You can put it in the microwave. If you put it in the oven, don't burn the house down. Just be very careful. Because that would be the opposite of romance. <laughs> Cook your wife's favourite meal and then eat it with them by candlelight. If you've got kids, get rid of the kids. That's what babysitters are for. If you don't know how to cook, get some lessons. There's plenty of people that will teach you how to cook. Come home with her favourite drink, snack or ice cream, flowers, whatever it is, etc. Take a walk and talk about the reasons why you married one another. Make some coupons and give it to her. As far as coupons being this, here's a coupon for a full body massage sometime this week, your choice. Make a hundred of them. Be creative with it. Be playful. Be naughty with it. Be exciting with it. Write a list of the 10 reasons why you love her and hand it to her. It's no good writing something and not giving it to her. Arrange for an intimate lunch date. Plan ahead. Like leave a note when you go out for work or whatever it is. Leave a note saying, this is where we want to connect with. This is where I'm going to meet up with you to have lunch. Make it fancy, make it different, make it exciting, make it romantic, make it intimate. Do a date night. Be deliberate about this. Over the next 30 days, make sure you do several date nights. Date night being, she doesn't organise the babysitter, she doesn't organise the restaurant, she doesn't organise the booking, you do everything. Spoil her. Even spoil her with what you're going to do when you come home. You're going to play a board game, you're going to watch a movie, you're going to do whatever it is. Spend time with her without any electronics on. No electronics. No Facebook. No nothing, no electronics. Love her. Be with her. Romance her. I think a lot of the issues in our marriages could be fixed if us as husbands were deliberate in romancing our wife. And coming back to this, that thought that Ephesians has, that wives want to be loved. Husbands, do you love your wife?
regardless of how she treats you, regardless of how she is, are you deliberate in loving your wife? Here's some ending thoughts. We all decorate our marriages with something. It'll be either a choice or a default choice. The question is, what is your marriage getting decorated with? And the decorations that we place on them will generally be what our children will inherit. So the decorations you place on your marriage will generally be the same marriage that your children will inherit. Are you comfortable with your children inheriting your marriage? If not, what do you need to change? Talk about it. Pray about it. How can you respect your husbands? How can you respect your wives? Here's the last thought that I want to end with is, is this. Not everything, not every decoration should be put on. In fact, some things should be taken off. Is there anything in your marriage that should be taken off that isn't leading to oneness, is rather creating isolation? So if you'd like to stand up, please. I'd like to pray for you. If through this series... Stuff has come up that you'd like to talk about. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you. Some of the elders are going to come up the front. I'll ask Alan and Lena to come up as well. And if you want to talk to anyone, I'd encourage you to come up the front and communicate with them. If you want someone to lead you through maybe a messy season in your life, come up the front. They would love to talk with you. They'll be discreet. It won't go any further. Like I said, next weekend, there's still some spots available for the marriage camp. If you'd like some details, we'd love to help you out with that. But otherwise, let me pray for you. Sound good? Yes. All right, God, I thank you that you love marriage, that you love relationships, and I, and I thank you that you love stretching us and growing us and challenging us. Father, I pray that we're deliberate in our marriages in stretching and growing, God. That I pray that us as husbands are deliberate in loving our wives, regardless of how she treats us. And as wives, they're the same, Father, that they are deliberate in respecting their husbands, regardless of how he loves her. But I pray, God, that as we all enter in and do that, that we're deliberate in proclaiming a marriage, Father, that presents your word, that presents your gospel, that presents your truth, Father. And I pray that we can all build marriages, relationships, friendships, Father, that are ultimately one for one, they are centered around you. You are at the core, that you are at the center of it, Father. But they also are godly in how they outwork with one another. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church.